Welcome, and thank you for listening to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. My name is Pat Horn. Before we dive into our story today, I have a couple of show notes to share. First, thank you for everyone who's listening. It's been great to see our audience grow over the two-year lifespan of this podcast, and I hope it continues. Thanks again for your support. However, since we have been around for a while, we are almost completely full on our free storage for past episodes. As a side project, my goal has always been to make this podcast as cost-effective as possible, and so far that's been achieved. While I'm looking into other options to fix this problem, in the short term, two past episodes will be taken down to clear up space for new upcoming episodes. Edward S. Curtis, The North American Indian, and A Sketch of War, Wally Berg Draws World War II, will be those episodes. They will remain up on the website and on your podcast service until the 26th of April when they will be removed. In the future, if we can obtain more space, they will be reposted, but make sure to listen in if you did not catch them the first time around. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, Lakeshore Museum Center fans. This is Wendy Van Workham and Gwen Miller, and today we are being joined on the History and Beyond podcast by Amber May and Eric Peterson, the owners and operators of The Fishmonger's Wife. We are getting a chance to sit down with them in their fish market shop to discuss the history and the future of commercial fishing here in Muskegon and Lake Michigan. So if you do hear any background noises, it is simply the noises of the shop. Welcome, Amber and Eric, and thank you for joining us today. First of all, we wanted to learn a little bit about yourselves and about your family, because we know you've got some little ones at home. Eric and I are part of the fourth generation of commercial fishing here in Muskegon. Uh, we're raising the fifth generation, so. <laughs> uh, Eric's family, though, is who started in this. How I got started in the business was I actually married Eric. Had nothing to do with the industry for the first five years. Like, I did not, huh. didn't know anything about it, really, other than this was what my husband's job was. And then we had our first baby, and, you know, I had a teaching certificate, and there was no jobs in Muskegon in 2010. And so I said, well, Eric, let's try selling fresh fish at the farmer's market and see how that goes for the summer, right? All else fails, you know, I'll be home with the baby, and we'll make it work. And from there, we just grew. Like, we had a huge demand that first summer, and then the second summer was even better. We added smoke fish. And then in 2012, we actually bought the brick-and-mortar building on Sherman. So, um, And really prior to that, Eric's family had only been fishers, and they hadn't done any direct sales. Mm -hmm. um, so they had shipped everything out to Chicago, uh, New York, Leland, but they didn't do any fillet sales or smoke fish sales direct here in Muskegon. So I was the first introduction to that part of the business. Very cool. So when you were having that farmer's market success, when did you guys start uh, thinking about the brick-and-mortar store? Was well, that kind of a right-away thing, or was that after a couple summers? Uh, that was after a couple of summers. I mean, okay. honestly, like, we thought this would just be like a summer gig. You know, mm -hmm. it would be uh -huh. like, oh, I'll go to the farmer's market while Eric's fishing. And we just had a demand and a lot of support from the mm -hmm. public. And we... We had to make some choices just about production space because what we were doing, you know, requires certain health codes and things like that. Right. So we had to make a decision of like, are we going to stay temporary or are we going to go full time? If you go full time, then you're talking about a big investment. Yeah. Right. And we decided to go for that full investment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been exciting it's though. Working out. Yeah. <laughs> we know you guys are doing the smoke today. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Can you describe a typical work day and what each of you does as part of the business? Yeah, definitely. My typical work day is I usually get up around 4.30, 5 o'clock during the summer. 
and I'll do some things at home that I can do. This is an instance where technology is amazing for our business mm -hmm. because I can do things in the morning while the kids are still sleeping that are administrative wise or Facebook posting or emails or that those kinds of things I can do first thing in the morning and get them out of the way. And then I get the kids up and I'm responsible for getting the kids to daycare basically. Mm -hmm. And then I'll come into work and I need to be here by 8, 8.15 to get the day rolling. So if we're running the smokehouse that day, the smokehouse needs to be taken care of. If we're doing fish production, that needs to be taken care of. Orders need to be going out. And then the fish market opens at 10 a.m., which actually has a lot of prep that goes into opening. So that mm -hmm. needs to be taken care of. And then we focus on customer service from 10 until 5.30. Keep in mind, too, that there's probably, like, the smokehouse going, and there's yeah. also fish processing going on, uh -huh. and uh, all those things. If you had a farmer's market in that day, I'm in charge of making sure all those plates are in the air and everything's spinning and moving smoothly. Mm -hmm. And when we run out of change, you know, I'm the yeah. one that's running to go get the change. And <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I get to go home. I'm very fortunate. I uh, have dinner with the kids, put them to bed. I'll be honest, we try to be very firm about like an 8 o'clock or 8.30 bedtime in our house because we get up at 4.30 in the morning. Sometimes, though, that's kind of a luxury, and if I have things I need to catch up on, that's when I catch up on them. So we're just talking generally about your family, and we learned how Amber got involved in the business. So do you want to share how you got involved in all of this fishing goodness? I was born into it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm fourth generation. My great grandpa mm -hmm. started it in 1927 uh -huh. after he moved down from uh, Fountain and then it went to his boys mm -hmm. and they all fished with him and then it went to my dad and his brothers and now my cousin and I. How would you say that the fishing industry has changed from when your great grandfather started? Like, Do you have family stories about what they were doing and what it was like at that point? Yeah, a lot has changed. Type of gear has changed, boats have changed, um, too many to list. <laughs> so why don't we talk about like the gear? So like what was your what was your great grandfather using versus what you guys use today? Back then he had cotton gillnets. Okay. So they had to be taken care of more. Some guys used to boil them down to keep them clean. They had to be treated. Mm -hmm. um, they had wooden floats on them, so the floats had to be oiled and soaked. And then, if my memory is right, linen gillnets come out, and um, everybody switched to those. And then um, in the early 70s, probably, then monofilament gillnets come out. He also fished trap nets back then, too. Okay. They were, they were big and bulky and heavy because they were made out of, out of cotton. So it was harder to handle, a lot of harder work back then because it was all done by hand. You didn't have a lot of the mechanical stuff that we have now. Sure. Has the fish population changed since back then compared to now? It has. And I haven't decided if it's for the better or for <laughs> the worse yet. Back then, there you had a lot more guys fishing. Mm -hmm. Every Every port had somebody in it, or even dozens of people in it. And nowadays you got hardly anybody. Right. But back then you were able to catch just about any kind of fish you wanted to catch. Mm -hmm. So whether it was lake trout or walleye or sturgeon or whatever, it was on the list and it was able to be taken. Um, and 
Now today we're regulated and we're a one species industry. We're only a whitefish fishery. I kind of don't like it the way it is yeah. because I think there should be some variety yet because there's only a handful of us nowadays compared to what there used to be. Sure. Mm -hmm. And our gear is different than what it used to be, so we're restricted in that because we're only a trap net fishery mainly. Um, we can still fish gillnets for chubs, but numbers are down on that because of multiple factors. So that's what it is right now. It's, yeah. it's the one species industry and it's tough to compete with Canada, mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. tribes, uh, even to compete with Wisconsin sometimes. Because the laws are different over in Wisconsin? Yep. Mm -hmm. How have the boats changed? They've changed a lot. My great grandpa started out, he had a rowboat. Okay. A uh, wooden rowboat. And that's when he fished his gill nets and trap nets with on the beach. They kept it back here um, by Hippie Curve, uh, down by the watermarks there. And um, they launch off the beach and then roll out. They had uh, trap nets down here by Bronson's farm. It wasn't that long of a row, but you know, it was with all that, with <laughs> a wooden rowboat and with a net in it or whatever, yeah. it, was, uh -huh. it was hard work back then. And then they had an outboard, but that ran down there but didn't run back, so they had to roll back. So <laughs> that didn't last too long. And then uh, he bought a boat that was called the Seagull. That mm -hmm. was his first gillnet boat. Well, it was a combination boat, actually. Gilnet boat and a trap net boat. Uh, and he used that. And then he run that for a while and sold it and then bought the three brothers from Paul Jensen and run that for a while. We've had lots of boats over the years. Sure. And then they built their first steel boat in the backyard in 55, I think it was. So we upgraded to steel then. There were lots of boats out already mm -hmm. right. that were steel, but um, we were still fishing the wood boat. Tell them about building the Peterson Brothers. Because you helped. Weren't you old enough to help with that? I did a little bit of welding on it. Yeah. And, but we built, We my great-grandpa and his sons built the, the Oral, which was named after my great-grandma. And that was the first boat. And then over the years, we've built another trap net boat. In 91 we finished it and then we rebuilt our other trap net boat that we bought. We put bottoms on our boat. So we do all of our own work. You've got to be a jack of all trades when you're in the industry. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah definitely. So you've got to be able to do what you can and make do with what you have. Amber described a typical day for her at work. Can you describe a typical day for you, and does it change depending on the season? A typical day, you get started about 4.35 o'clock, mm -hmm. and load the boats with ice, and then go figure your run time. If you got an hour run, and you get there just as it's breaking day, and then you just start lifting your nets. You go from net to net, and lift as many as you can, or if there's a lot of fish, you lift one or two and then come with your catch. Some days you'll be in before noon, some days it'll be afternoon. It just depends mm -hmm. on what there is for fish. 
Gilnets is a little different. You'll you got to run to get there, and that's usually pretty much get home two or three in the afternoon because um, it's a farther run uh, because of regulation. So, uh, but that's about it. And you just get up and do it again the next day. It's routine, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. What, what he left out is that the first like five years that we opened the fish market. That would be his day on the boat, and then he would come and work at the market and process for an additional six hours. So, I mean, there was times where Eric would come home, and it would be 10 o'clock at night, Mm. and we'd just shut down the processing room, and he had to be on the fish tug the next morning and up at, like, 4.30 to get going. So, and that was two full summers at least of us mm-hmm. doing that. So that's when we opened the brick and mortar. When we were just doing the farmer's market, it was a lot easier because it wasn't as much volume, right. but opening the brick and mortar changed. So when we bought machinery that did a lot of the stuff we were doing by hand, that was great. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. So what has been in your processing room, let's say, what has been like the best machine investment that you've made that helps cut processing time or just oh. hours processing? The fillet machine. Yeah, the fillet machine and the scaler. Okay. And those are the two that cut down on the most time. For sure. Because uh, the scaler holds, will hold 800 pounds, and it only takes about 10 minutes to scale. Oh, wow. And that's like a big tumbler that the fish all go in, and it gets just all the scales yep. off, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Cool. And then the fillet machine will cut a fish. It'll do 100 pounds in three and a half minutes. Wow. It takes a yeah. lot of the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that that is a lot. That's that's a big difference. It's a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. We used to cut by hand. So when we first started, we were doing well. Eric. So I, I I always say we and Eric was actually doing. I was helping, but I was doing more of the support stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Eric was the true knife behind the work. So you kind of talked about fishing zones. So are you guys only allowed to fish in a certain area, or can you fish out anywhere? We have a depth restriction that we're under. Okay. And we're also under a mileage oh, okay. limit also. Mm-hmm. So we get 50 mile radius to the south and we get to Stony Lake, which is about 20 miles, maybe 22 miles, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. in the north. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the tribal consent decree. So we're restricted in our, where our zone is, and then we're limited for depth. We can only fish as deep as 150 for trap nets. Then the gill nets are 240 feet and deeper, so they can't be inside of 240. And that's a big change from when your grandpa fished, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot because you could fish anywhere, really. Um, chubs were, weren't restricted as bad. They, you could fish 30 fathom, 25 fathom, and now it's 40 fathom and out. Okay. So, um, yeah, it is. And that's the problem that I don't agree with is it's way restricted for the amount of people compared to what it used to be and the right. amount of people that were back then. Right. So when he started fishing, how many commercial fishing families or individuals do you guys think there were in Muskegon? Do you have a guess? Lots. There uh-huh. were lots. Everybody all tied up in Port Sherm with the, well, Jensen's did for a while, then they moved to Lakeside, Tender Dock in Lakeside. Okay. Um, but everybody was in Port Sherm. 
Griswolds were down there, Lawsons were down there, Vandenbergs were there, um, Meadows were down there, Weitenheimers, Fredericks, Senecals, McNabs had their own dock uh, up here by the Norge, that's where they were. Trumps were, Trumps were here, then they were also in uh, Mono Lake. So it was almost 10 families then, at least, if not more than that. And that's counting the guys that had bigger boats. Now, that's mm-hmm. not that's not counting all the guys that had robot licenses back then. So there were lots of lots of others that probably had robot licenses, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, Nielsen's fished up on the north side off the beach. Okay. They had a, they had a robot license, and then you know there was more up in Montague. Sure. So there was a big industry. There was lots and lots of people. And so now it's you guys, and is there anybody else that goes out of Muskegon as well? No, not anymore. We're the only ones that are mm-hmm. running out of here. Um, Jensen's still hold a license okay. on our fishing, but we're the only ones now out of, mm-hmm. out of dozens of people from before. Right. And so what do you think was one of the kind of contributing factors to that change? So how come some people got out of it? Well, that had to do with policy change. So in 67, the state made the effort to convert us from a commercial fishery to a sport fishery. That's when they started planting salmon. Okay. Um, we also saw sea lamprey come in, too. Sure. So, and the sea lamprey were pretty devastating to the lake trout population. So it was harder to fish because the fish weren't as plentiful. Then we mm-hmm. saw a conscious effort to convert the fishery, which closed a lot of waters and put a lot of fishers out. The mm-hmm. rowboater guys pretty much went away at mm-hmm. that point, so it was just left to the full-time people. And then we saw the tribal consent decree come in, which closed more waters. First one was in 80, right? 85. 85. So 85 closed waters. And then we saw in 90, was it 1990 or two, just 2000? 2000. Okay. 2000, that saw more guys go. And mm-hmm. next year is a consent decree, which we're hoping is not... It's <laughs> not the more closure, but kind of a perfect storm of everything happening sure. statewide. So you had kind of regulations and you had invasive species coming in and mm-hmm. yeah. planting of sport fish and yeah. so yeah. all different kinds of things. Where do you guys see with this consent decree coming, where do you guys see kind of the future of commercial fishing here in Michigan? Do you think there's still room for places like this, which is really cool for our local economy? And others, like, do you think it will stay kind of level or do you think there may be some more interest? Oh boy, that's a complicated question. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a very important industry to keep because not everybody wants to go out and catch their own fish. They'd rather go to the restaurant and eat it, and that's where people like us come in because we supply the restaurants, and then those people can go and enjoy their fish dinner. And if you get rid of more and more fishermen, then you're going to have to rely on outsourcing your fish or eventually if they do away with it not having Mm -hmm. fish that you had before on a personal level i love that you guys are here because i would rather buy local fish than fish that came from who knows where yeah yeah (laughs) definitely yeah well and i think that's the mindset of a lot of people right now too the reality is though is that there's only a half of those left and i mean eric's got almost a hundred years of that knowledge passed on to them. This is not the kind of business that you just decide you're going to go buy and get into. Right. (laughs) Eric's a lot more optimistic than me. I truly believe if we don't start seeing some more support from the state, there's Uh potential like in the next consent decree for us to have some serious problems where 
we just can't fish enough to make a living anymore is the right. problem. I mean, I've obviously I've invested and I do uh-huh. feel hope. <laughs> yeah. But we can't continue how we've continued for the last 25 years. Right. We got to see some changes. If someone wanted to learn more about what the set degree coming up is, where yeah. would you recommend they going to read more about that? Uh, Cora1836.org. Okay. So that is the Chippewa mm-hmm. Ottawa Resource Authority. That is the the, man, the governing body of the five tribes that are part of the consent decree. Okay. Um, and that has some great information on there about, well, first, the actual consent decree is listed. So if you want to read 76 pages, <laughs> uh-huh. feel free. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it also, it, it does dispel a lot of the rumors that circulate about what the treaty is and the consent sure. decree. Because there's a lot of that that flies around there. But yeah, that would be the best resource great. for sure. What is your favorite part of doing this kind of work? My favorite part is the flexibility, actually, because I do have my sick kindergartner in the office right, right. now who uh-huh. works with me because that's how it is. And they're going to have a cool experience growing up in a family business and going to the farmer's market with mom and dad. So I enjoy that. I'm pretty bullheaded. I'm just not a good employee for other people. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoy that freedom. Yeah. Uh-huh. For Eric, it's probably different, though. <laughs> Being outside, yeah, you know, you're outside all the time. You get to see lots of things that other people don't get to see. Um, you, know, you work hard when the fish are there, and enjoy your time off when you can. And what do you think is the most surprising thing you've seen out on the lake? Because you spent a lot of time outside, and like you said, you probably have seen a lot of things that people don't get to. Um, probably the the thunderstorms. That's yeah. probably the yeah. the biggest and, and uh, nastiest you see you get a lot of wind sometimes and you see some some good sized seas but you're usually heading for home then and you know a thunderstorm you can see way off in the distance and you can kind of watch it and you can see it moving and you can see if it's coming towards you or whatever so i think that's probably the the neatest thing yeah what's the most interesting thing that's come up in the nets You get get all the stuff off the beach when the water uh, is high, like now. High water, then you get a lot of stuff that washes off the beach. Okay. Um, And even in the fall when the seas are big and break on the beach, then it it goes up and and pulls the stuff Mm -hmm. back in. So you get get lots of stuff like that. You know, if somebody's fixing the seawall or something on the beach, you'll get Uh lumber, you'll get stumps, you'll get trees... No so, cars. <laughs> you get yeah. It's just it's just basic stuff that people have along the beach that you get. What would you guys say is the most important thing for people to know about your business and its history? Probably our <laughs> history is we're one of the oldest industries okay. around, and there's information out there if people are willing to dig for it. There's lots of mm-hmm. information and photos about the industry nowadays with you can find just about anything so that's always a good place to look you know yeah. a lot of the local libraries and museums in certain areas will have a lot of stuff so people can go there and, and look back so the last two questions are number one what's the most important thing that people can do to support y'all in your business endeavors and the second one is what's your favorite thing about living in Muskegon 
shop with us. <laughs> yes, there you go. That's buy, an easy buy one. Fish. Yep. Yeah. Support your uh, local fish markets, mm -hmm. you know, or mm -hmm. even if you're if you're on vacation, stop in and buy mm -hmm. smoked fish or fresh fish or something from the local fish market and support the the local business. Go to the grocery store and get it, but you're probably not getting the freshest unless you to market. So definitely go and do the local market. And I would say shop with confidence. If you're buying from a fish market in Michigan, you're buying from a small family owned business because that's all that's left of us. We're mm -hmm. not a monster conglomerate. We are mm -hmm. small little family businesses. So, you know, shop with confidence. Don't be worried that you're, mm -hmm. it's not going to be, it's overfished or any of that. There's so many regulations and safeguards in place now. If you're buying a Michigan wild caught fish, you're good. Shop with confidence, it's good. And then I'm going to add, because this has been a hot issue for us for the last like six months or so, tell people who are getting down on commercial fishing in Michigan that you support commercial fishing and you're like, no, man, I think that that's a cool business. Yeah. I'm okay with it. Uh -huh. Like, don't let people tell you that commercial fishing, we're going to ruin the lakes or anything like that because it's just not going to happen. There's not enough of us left to do it. Someone's bad mouthing us. Feel free to say, "No, man, I shop with my local fish person, and they really—that's not true." Right. Feel free to tell your representative and your senator. I don't know. I think that this is a good business that should have some support. Uh -huh. <laughs> excellent. So, Amber, what's your favorite part about living in Muskegon? The beach. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> I didn't grow up here, so uh -huh. the beach is—I mean, by far—that is my favorite thing about Muskegon. And if somebody wanted to learn more about The Fishmonger's Wife, where can they go to get that information? Thefishmongerswife.net. Thank you for joining us today for this recording of the Lakeshore Museum Center's History and Beyond podcast. We hope that you enjoyed sitting in on our conversation with Amber May and Eric Peterson about the commercial fishing industry history here in Muskegon. Please do remember that you can support them by visiting their fish market, which is located at 2127 West Sherman Boulevard. They are open Tuesday to Friday from 10 to 530 and Saturday from 9 to 4 o'clock. If you'd like to find them online, as Amber said, you can also find them online at www.thefishmongerswife.net. And if you are not interested in cooking your own fish for dinner and would rather have someone else cook it for you, you can often find the Fishmonger's Wife fish over at the Hearthstone Bistro or Smash Wine Bar. And do remember, even though the Petersons are fishing for whitefish on Lake Michigan pretty exclusively, they do source for the fish market shellfish, both fresh and frozen, as well as other fish like salmon, cod, halibut, um, depending seasonally. So if you want to be in the know, be sure to like their Facebook page to keep up to date on what they have in the case and what's going on in fishing around Muskegon. Mm -hmm.